Paracast with your hosts Gene Steinberg and David Piedney. A couple of years back, we had Tom Hartman, a radio talk show host who tends to be considered progressive or liberal. And, you know, he covers financial conspiracy theories and stuff like that. And what to my wondering eyes do I read the other day that one of the wackos of the exopolitics movement is going to be on his show? What the heck is that? Maybe he uh, has been taking a cue from the Paracast. Maybe he's going to have the wacko on and then expose him. Maybe that's the plan. I was thinking about that. Maybe that's what he's really going to do. And he's just not telling anybody. It's a pretty heavy-duty wacko he's having on. Right. It's all about our latest moon probe. Well, it's not all about that necessarily. Our wacko's about a lot of weird stuff. But, uh, yeah, I guess uh, Hartman's having him on about the uh, probes that are being crashed into the moon. Right. Evidently, he feels that the probes being crashed into the moon will somehow affect them. Them? You know, them. No, I don't know them. Who's them? Well, them, they, whatever. The creatures. Them, they? Them, they who inhabit the moon. They, them. Someone inhabits the moon? I don't know. This lunatic seems to think they inhabit the moon. But in any case here, this is the problem. Credibility doesn't matter, says Stephen Bassett. And this is one of the people that he touts at his events. Right. Alfred Weber. Let's just come out and say it. Yes. Yeah. He so, believes, ladies and gentlemen, that particle beams destroyed number seven World Trade Center. There's a lot of stuff he believes. You know, he believes there are chickens on Mars. And uh, he believes that in 2012 there is this weird intergalactic... I don't, you know, I don't even want to know that any of my brain cells are devoted to what that lunatic spews. The other day, for some reason, call me masochistic... I went and tried listening to one of that guy's podcasts. You know, Weber does these podcasts. And uh, somebody on the forums have been talking about a recent podcast of his. And I, you know, Gene, because I, I like I said, I'm, I'm a glutton for punishment sometimes. I went and uh, tried to open my mind, as it were, and uh, listen to about, I, I could only get about 15 minutes in. And then uh, the crazy just got too intense and I had to turn it off because it was just an assault on logic and rationality and clear thinking and and everything that I consider to be, like, good. It was an assault on all of that. It was just sheer madness. Really, truly, sheer madness and in an unending drone. I mean, I, sometimes I wish that I had stayed in school and gone, gotten a degree in psychology had become maybe a psychiatrist or something and and I could like give a really close look to some of these people maybe really put them under the microscope and try to figure out what sort of severe psychological damage has affected some of these people because when you listen to Weber go and th- what's what's weird about this guy right I mean you go look at look at some of his background like so many of these people, there there are some what appear to be legitimate credentials to this guy. Now, how many of those do we believe? How many have been vetted? You know, who knows? Who knows? But this guy Weber, I, I'm guessing that someone like Hartman asked him to be on because he looked at like some bio page for Weber and said, oh, seems to be a somewhat legitimate person. I'll have him on. But then you start to read his writings or, or God forbid, you listen to the podcast and it's just an unending stream of crazy. 
So did Hartman do any kind of due diligence on Weber? I wonder. Well, I get the impression from listening to his radio show sometimes that Hartman probably pays a lot of close attention to the field of expertise. Okay. As soon as he strays out of that field, you know, he probably doesn't know what's really going on and probably either is advised by producers for a show or just read something and said, this would be an interesting story. Let me put somebody on there for 15 minutes and have a little fun. I can't imagine any other reason. Well, you can't imagine, but, but who knows? I have to think that in today's world, Gene, the most, most basic level of armchair research, you've got somebody's name plugging into Google with double quotation marks. I mean, that's like, that's, that's, that's due diligence 101. Really, you would do that just out of curiosity, for Christ's sakes, just, just because it makes sense, just to see what's out there. Not that you're going to believe any of it. I mean, people, when we talk about these kinds of things, sometimes people jump to these extremes. Well, you're just going to Google them? Well, it's a, it's a decent place to start. And I mean, if you do that with someone like Weber, you don't have to get more than a page in to get a, a handle on, you know, what the guy's about. And, and I'm not trying to even be judgmental here. I'm just saying that when, when, when people start to go into some of the stuff that Weber does, I don't know, Gene, this is where I start to wonder about what we're doing here in this quote unquote field of paranormal stuff. Because it, it, we've been we've been uh, accused of attacking people and being really harsh and debunking, and I, I, yeah, when I come right down to it, I think well we're just approaching things from a sometimes I mean not always but certainly often we're approaching things from just a rational point of view. Someone says something extreme, don't people see that ex- as extreme? I mean. I, I sometimes wonder where the thresholds are these days about all sorts of content. I mean, it seems like people are so, they're so tense. They're sort of so poised to, to, to leap at things that if you come out and say something like, well, Alfred, you know, Alfred Weber with with his particle beam stuff, you're attacked for being too harsh. You know, how can you be, well, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. And I think, well, (laughs) Well, now, wait a minute. When you have a guy saying things like Weber states and goes on record about, and this thing about where we're throwing these probes into the moon, we're crashing them into the moon, and it's going to start some sort of you know, interstellar war or some crap. I don't know. I couldn't, I couldn't get through that whole piece, Gene, because, again, I'm not saying I'm the sanest guy on the planet, but you start to read Weber's stuff, and I have to think that if you're in any way still on this planet <laughs> with your feet somewhat on the ground, you're not going to look at that and say, well, that's just nutty, really nutty. And man, I mean, the stuff we talk about on the Paracast, the stuff I've experienced, I want to think that I can have somewhat of an open mind about this stuff because I realize that I've seen things that I would say to people, this is what I went through. This is an experience I had. And people would look at me and go, you know, he's just completely out to lunch. I understand this. I've put myself on both sides of the argument. I've visualized myself on both sides of the fence. But like we say many times, I mean, when, we, when we're cautious about things, when we're skeptical about things, we're not trying to say we know what's going on. We know what the explanation is. I, don't, I think people interpret what we say as taking those kinds of stands and I honestly don't think we do. When I go back and listen to some of the older shows, 
We don't claim to know what UFOs are. We don't claim to have answers in this field. And I think the message we try to put out there is very simple, which is that when people say they have definitive answers, that you should question that. That's all. Look at, look at what they're saying. And when Weber says things like, well, if we do this, then this is going to happen. I mean, this was like the whole issue with Bassett, where he says, you know, we know the government knows what these things are. We know they have free energy. It's like, who, what do you mean we know? How do you know this? You don't know it. Well, aren't you making an assumption then? Well, you know what? He will say that he has top secret military sources. That's one way. Mm. So, well, you know, he's out of the picture. He's out of the picture. And, you know, we're not. No, he's not out of the picture. He's in the He's put himself in the picture. These people have put themselves in the picture. And again, there, I'm sure there are people who would say that you and I have put ourselves in the picture as well. And, and maybe to some degree we have. But this is something that, and again, Gene, this reverberates across so many different things I'm thinking about right now. Just looking at what's going on in our world, looking at our interactions with our reality, there are a lot of things that I'm personally questioning, and there are a lot of things I'm hoping a lot of people are questioning. I mean, our, our values as a species, the things that we find important, the priorities that we have, the things we, we put a lot, a lot of energy into, the things that we try to ignore... I mean, I, I'm kind of looking at all of this as, as a part of becoming an adult, growing up, which is an ongoing process as far as I'm concerned. One should make oneself more aware of what's happening in the world, more, certainly try to be more knowledgeable to the degree that it's practical. Because not everybody can spend time reading books and poring over stuff. Maybe, maybe we're wasting our time doing this stuff. I don't know. I, I keep coming back to... Though at the end of the day, thinking these are important areas where someone, someone's got to go and, and try to, I don't even want to say be a centrist voice, but perhaps just a voice of reason and not the voice of reason. Because, you know, who knows? I mean, maybe the trees we're barking up are all wrong. I don't know. And actually, you know what? Today's guest is going to take us to a strange place. And I, and I predict that there are going to be listeners who will hear this episode and say, what have these guys done? What are they doing? Who are they talking to? Why are they talking about this stuff? Why aren't they, uh, you know, bringing out uh, blowtorches and, and nooses and stuff? And it's like, you know what? Because of the fact that we try to have open, honest conversations and we don't claim to have all the answers. And I think that we're going to have a guest on today who's normally known for one type of material, but as it turns out, She's been researching stuff that's sort of going off on a tangent. And there are some things that she's come up with that, that I have some concerns about. There are other things that seem really odd, extremely odd. And uh, ultimately, perhaps she won't even claim she knows what the answers are. But of course, we just have to talk about it because that's why we're the Paracast, right? That's right, and this will be Nancy Talbot rejoining us on the Paracast to talk about not just crop circles, but crop circles, and way beyond, this week on the Paracast. I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. Fate Magazine is proud to be celebrating its 60th anniversary and its 700th issue. That's 60 years of bringing you true reports of the strange and unknown. Fate brings you the latest on all aspects of the paranormal, like angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, and much, much more. 
It's bigger and better than ever. Subscribe now by calling 1-800-728-2730 or online at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and Gene and David. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. Hi, this is Don Ecker, and you are tuned into the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. Hey, let me tell you what. You're going to hear stuff here that you probably won't hear anywhere else. Hear that, George Snorri? Nancy Talbot from BLT Research Team. It's been a long time since we had you on, and uh, obviously you've been doing all sorts of stuff since then, so... What's going on in the world of crop circles, which is what you're most most closely associated with? What's happened since we last spoke to you? It's got to be like a couple of years ago now. Has been. I think it has been a couple of years. The uh, circles, of course, continue. And uh, last night I was talking to somebody who was unaware that they continue all over the world. Uh, they're not just in the U.K., as some people think, but all over the United States and Canada, and now we're getting them in Brazil and various other countries in South America, as well, of course, as all over Europe and Russia. China, I don't know about, but almost every other place, it appears, they occur. And they are continuing, regardless of the fact, you know, whether people want to think about it or not. This brings up an interesting question, Nancy, because obviously you've been studying these things for a number of years now. In terms of the way that the phenomena is playing itself out geographically, as you just said, they're starting to appear in other countries. I just read something about a major um, set of occurrences in Russia. I believe oh, really? Just, yeah, just today on, uh, on The Anomalist, there was a link to some very odd Russian crop circle activity. You might want to look into that. Um, but if we look at the way these things are playing out across the world, you know, there are a number of people, obviously, that, that have concerns about the veracity of the crop circle phenomenon. And one of the things that I guess I'm curious about, when if you talk about something like, let's say, uh, activity happening in Brazil, we know that in, in the U.K. these things tend to happen in, in the summer. Well, now, that's when you've got crops in the field, remember. Right. I mean, so, they're happening crops, so they're going to happen during the growing season. So that's the that's the case then for wherever they happen in the world, is would that be a correct assumption? Sure, I mean they do occasionally occur in something like reeds, for instance, which mm -hmm. may grow year round. They have been a few times we have evidence that they've occurred in snow, uh, in sand, you know, where you've got no crop. But generally they occur in crops. So here in the northern hemisphere, that means from what May here in the states through october november when the corn is still in the fields in the southern hemisphere it's the reverse of course right so we know that much about the temporal positioning of the phenomenon what about geographic positioning 
obviously there are people who say that there are certain types of energy grids or ley lines along which these things tend to happen. And then I know that a book that I was reading about the phenomenon in the UK seemed to describe that there's a predominance of crop circle activity in areas where there's a significant amount of lime deposits. Under yeah, the there's work that was done years ago by Glenn Britt, who now is here in the States, and a partner of his. And what they discovered was that the area in southern England, where they occur most frequently, is uh, underlaid by a limestone deposit, you know, the famous chalk cliffs of Dorset. Mm-hmm. And we know that, pardon me, limestone is the most porous rock, and that as water percolates down through the chalk uh, over the summer, I mean, it tends to rain a lot in the spring, and then usually in the summers it rains less, and the surface water percolates down through the chalk, uh, we got the idea that maybe there was a change in the ground electrical charge, and we went over to England and did a lot of measurements for a couple of years to see if the ground electrical charge, in fact, altered. And it does. It increases over the summer as the surface water has to percolate farther to reach the aquifer, because the aquifer drops over the summer. Right. It's a very minor, uh, it's a moderate change in the surface electrical charge. But the idea that what prompted our work was the fact that, you know, Glenn and his buddy had found out that this chalk aquifer was present under most of the circles. And the idea that if this was an atmospheric plasma system of some kind causing the circles, it, because it's an electrically charged air mass, might be attracted to areas where the ground electrical charge was slightly different. And in fact, we did find that the ground electrical charge in southern England is stronger and does increase as the summer goes along. Well, the circles also increase generally in number as the summer progresses. And so it looks as if there may be a connection there. I mean, it's not a proven fact. It's simply an observation that looks as if there's a connection between increased ground electrical charge and the occurrence of crop circles. Not their designs, not their size, nothing like that, simply the numbers of them. Uh, we also know that here in the States, many of them appear to occur over limestone deposits. Well, not chalk. It's chalk in southern England. Here it's limestone. But limestone is the next most porous rock. And they tend to occur quite frequently here over limestone deposits. And, for instance, here in New England, where I live, you have primarily granite as the underlayment. And we don't get them. You know, we we don't tend to get them here. Uh, Many other countries where they occur a lot also seem to have this limestone sub-layer. So it may be that it is it functions as an attractor to this uh, energetic system as an attractor or an attractor Uh, well is it possible that it's part of a circuit um that it's a medium i don't know enough to say for certain that that would be so but perhaps i mean the uh, nobody knows of course i mean the it's a theory that this atmospheric plasma or a plasma whether it's atmospheric or something else i mean it could be a produced plasma i suppose But if, in fact, plasma is involved and the changes in the plants and soils 
tend to, at least uh, in most cases, indicate that. I mean, plasmas are known to be their highly electrified, you know, air masses. When they spiral, they emit m microwaves. They also are associated with strong magnetic fields. And the effects on the plants, and to some extent, the effects on the soils, all indicate having been exposed to a plasma discharge. And so it's a reasonable idea. It is an atmospheric plasma of some kind that is responsible. Now, whether or not it's a naturally occurring plasma, like in recent years, for instance, the science community was completely unaware until maybe eight, ten years ago, of two new types of plasma discharges. One is called uh, a Sprite. Another is called it was a Red Flare or Red Devil or something they called it. And these were just discovered recently. These are discharges that occur in the upper atmosphere that had not been known to science, you know, plasma discharges. The way it was discovered was that pilots who fly at, you know, 30,000, 35,000 feet were seeing these things, these discharges, and reporting them. And science simply, no particular scientist had actually observed it. Finally, they did. And now they know that, yes, there are these types of plasma discharge which were completely unknown 10 years ago. What Levingood was suggesting was that maybe there's some other kind also unknown, you know? Mm -hmm. Now, whether that's the correct final word, I have no idea. Now, and that certainly doesn't go anywhere towards explaining the designs of these things. Um, well, it actually does. Remember, again, with the designs, the big problem you've got when you start to try to evaluate designs is you have to know whether or not the circle you're looking at was a real one. Absolutely. If, in fact, it was man-made, right. then obviously that design gets thrown out as something you have to look at. Absolutely. And well, I was going to work my way up to that. Right? Yeah. So, yeah, Unfortunately, yeah. large numbers, it's imp nobody has the money to examine, to, you know, to do the kind of work that we do on any huge number of them, even in one summer. You just don't have the money. It's a lot of work. And consequently, huge numbers of them, nobody knows whether they were real or not. And so people include some of these fantastic designs as part of the phenomenon. And we know from, from our work that some of these incredible designs were, in our opinion, absolutely genuine. But we don't know about a huge majority of them. Right. And so we don't know if those designs have to be included or not. To some extent, I mean, apparently in fluid dynamics, you see that very complex designs, usually uh, swirling uh, circular type designs, occur all the time in nature. Sure, this but is usually, not abnormal. Right, but usually they have multiple lateral symmetry. I mean, and, and that's something that when, when I talked about complexity, um, yeah, I want to work up to that, but obviously in fluid dynamics, there have been all these tests with things like... Um, uh, 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 metallic liquids being affected by uh, magnetic fields underneath and right. uh, causing formations that usually one of the um, characteristics is a very high degree of symmetry. They're not asymmetrical patterns. They're they're highly symmetrical patterns. And and so that, you know, obviously that, that excludes a whole bunch of stuff. Getting to that question, though, because you brought it up, I think that's a relevant question to address if you had to just throw out a, an overall percentage, and this is you know just a guesstimate, mind you, I'm not going to hold you this number, what percentage of crop circle manifestations would you say are potentially man-made versus 
non-man-made. Are you speaking of England? Are you speaking of them worldwide? Worldwide. I mean, Definitely you got to be worldwide. okay worldwide. Yeah, yeah. Oh God, it's impossible. You can't make an intelligent intelligent guess on that. You'd have to know how many of them there were. Every single year, when I wherever I'm working, wherever whatever country I'm in, if I'm investigating the crop circle thing, I always every single time uh, when I'm out in the field questioning the farmers, the landowners, whoever, I find that there have been X number of others which were never reported were never seen by anybody, the farmer or the landowner or whoever did not report it. We don't know how many of them there are. And we obviously, I don't speak Chinese, so I don't have any idea what's going on in China. Uh, we have some contacts in Africa, but, you know, not an, I certainly don't speak Swahili. There, I mean, there's so many places where we don't have what you could call competent information. Okay. Nancy, Nancy, is this then a worldwide phenomenon? Yeah, I think okay. you have to say that. Sure. Okay. I, I would say in southern England that you know that there's a fair percentage of them that are man-made. Right. But I think uh, from the work that I've done there and from things I keep, you know, I'm in touch with a lot of people who are there when I'm not, that they continue, the genuine phenomenon continues to occur in southern England. But I have no idea what percentage without, the only way I know to tell is based on what the science tells me, and that means you've got to do all these node measurements and growth studies and all that stuff. It's not done on the majority of them, so I don't know how you say what percentage are or aren't. Are you ready to order the official Paracast t-shirt? You asked? We answered. We're now taking orders for the official Paracast t-shirt. It comes in white, 100% cotton. The front of it features the same logo that we have on our community forums. On the back it says, separating signal from noise. It's just $14.95 plus shipping in your choice of sizes. To order the official Paracast t-shirt, here's all you have to do. Visit our new online store at store.theparacast.com. One more time, that's store.theparacast.com. You can use a major credit card or PayPal to place your order for the official Paracast t-shirt. You're listening to the Paracast. The gold standard of paranormal radio. We have Nancy Talbot of the BLT research team joining us, and we're exploring the incredible mystery of crop circles, and we've got something else related to that, which we'll discuss a little bit later, about the analysis of the crop circles, looking at the stuff that you regard as genuine. What kind of characteristics can we expect? Are you talking now in the plants? Yes. Okay. The basic plant changes are uh, apical node. This is the top node beneath the seed head on most of the plants. These are cereal plants, you know, uh, oats, barley, rye, whatever, uh, wheat. The first node beneath the seed head will be about a foot, foot and a half down below the seed head in the mature plant. At that node, which is the youngest tissue, uh, the most elastic tissue, what we find are that those nodes are elongated. Not necessarily bent, elongated. And I have lots of images of this on the website if people go to it and go to the plant abnormalities page. 
uh, you can clearly see these things uh, photographed. So it's apical node elongation, and on some of these events, we also get what we call expulsion cavities, holes blown out at the nodes farther down. Both of those changes in the plants are associated, we believe, with the presence of microwave radiation, very quick, sharp, intense bursts of microwaves. They're heating up the moisture inside the plant stems. At the top of the stem, when the node, which is filled with water, turns to steam, it seeps out because those tissues are elastic, and it leaves the nodes stretched. Farther down the plant stem, the steam builds up. The tissues are not elastic. They're very tough, and consequently, it builds up to the point where it just blows a hole through them. Those are two of the visible changes that occur in the plants. There are also growth abnormalities. If you take the seeds from uh, crop-circle plants and you grow them out uh, along with controls from elsewhere in the field, what you'll see is that depending on the age of the crop at the time the crop-circle happens and also apparently the intensity level of the microwave component as well as these electrical pulses that we know are associated, what happens is that the plants, either the seedlings, will not grow. This is what we see usually when it occurs in young crop. Before the seed is fully formed, the seed will then develop to be stunted and will not produce uh, viable seedlings. However, later on in the season, when the seed is fully formed, when the crop circle occurs, those seeds, although they will be dehydrated and will weigh less and look stunted, they regularly will grow at up to five times the rate of normal. This is related to the exposure to the electrical component of this energy system. That's uh, something, of course, you can't find out unless by you do the lab work. It's how you have to show it. But this is another typical change in the real crop circles. There are a number of other changes, but those are perhaps the most critical in the plants. In the soils, what we find are tiny spheres in the 10 to 50 micron diameter uh, range of uh, very pure iron deposited in the soils of crop circles. Most frequently, these are found around the perimeter, indicating a rotating delivery system of some kind, you know, like centrifugal force is what's depositing them. Sometimes, though, we find them with the greatest concentration at the centers of the circular components, and every so often we find them deposited linearly, meaning usually the least number at the center, and then if you keep sampling, let's say every five feet out to the edges, you know, along several different radii, you'll find that the numbers increase in this perfect example of linear deposition. That can't happen in nature. There's no way that's happening uh, without some uh, agency being present. I mean, they're, they're invisible to begin with to the naked eye, and when they're deposited in that perfect linear manner, it really, I mean, clearly shows you that you're dealing with something besides planks and boards for sure. Now, what you're describing, these little spheres, are they perfectly formed little spheres? Mm-hmm. Again, if you go to the website and look under magnetic material in the soils, yeah, you will see some, um, these are photographs taken through a microscope because it's the only way you can really see them. Right. And if you go to the second picture there, you'll see these tiny little spheres that have been, we find them all the time. Yeah. Now, 
since that original work, we thought originally, Levin, Good, and Burke were the opinion that meteoritic dust, which is filtering to Earth all the time and is normal, sometimes gets caught up in this vortex energy system. The meteoritic dust, which is microscopic, gets heated up by the microwave energy that's produced by this rotating spiraling plasma. The heat causes these little particles to melt and fuse. Then, as they fall through the atmosphere, just like in you know Revolutionary War times, we made shot, lead shot, yeah, by melting it and dumping it you know off of a, off a tower. Yeah, that's exactly what they think is going on here. So, has there been any attempt to formulate a theory? Yeah, uh, as I say, this plasma vortex theory is based on the results, Levin Good's results over about a 12, 13-year period, his looking at the plants and soils and all of these results are consistent with exposure to a rotating plasma you know, system and then a discharge. All of these things, because we know that plasmas emit microwaves when they rotate. We know that plasmas are associated with these unusual electrical pulses, and we also know they have strong magnetic fields. Therefore, these results seem to indicate more than anything else we know at the moment uh, that a rotating and then discharging plasma system is what's causing it. I guess what I was going to ask about these little iron spheres, um, is there any difference, any spectrographic or chemical difference between these little iron spheres and ones that would have come from outside our atmosphere? Has there been an attempt to compare them? Um, that's a good question. Two things I need to say there. Yeah. Uh, I mean, if, they're, if it's meteoric dust, it's coming from outside our atmosphere. I mean, absolutely you know, right. Yeah, meteors right. are entering the upper atmosphere all the time and being fizzled to to these tiny little dust particles. Sure. However, we found subsequently that some of sometimes these particles are much more likely to be something called fly ash. It's a byproduct of coal-fired power plants, and it is, as far as we can now tell, distributed pretty much all over the Earth's surface over the years and years and years that there have been coal-fired you know, power plants. This is a fluvia, which is ejected from the smoke plumes. Now, in the cases where it is fly ash, which has a different, you know, basic composition in which you can tell when you do an EDS. What's interesting then when we find them is not that they're present because it, they may have been present all over the area to begin with. Sure. It's how they are deposited. If they're deposited again in any sort of linear fashion or they're deposited all around the edges or in the centers, that clearly indicates another mechanism, not simply dis the dispersal of fly ash spherules all over the surface. Something has disturbed the way in which they were deposited on the ground. Well, that, that's sort of what I'm getting at with these questions. It almost sounds like, and give me a reality check on this, Nancy. Sure. It almost sounds like what I'm seeing here is some sort of a system by where the stalks are softened, right. made more malleable. Exactly. And then it's as if then these little particles were being shot at in the way that you would shoot buckshot. Let's say to make <laughs> if, you, if you were using like a shotgun. I see. And shooting buckshot to make patterns like in the, in the ground. I mean, it almost sounds like this is some sort of a delivery system where, again, you prepare the medium by softening it, and then the designs 
are made by certain types of dispersal patterns of this, I'll call it buckshot, that it sounds like an engineered thing. Well, I've never really, really thought about that particular idea, but I mean, we don't find the particles in all circles, and I am right. not sure at this instant whether in all of the ones where we thought they were for real because of the plant information, right. were they present or not. That I'm was not my sure. next question. Exactly. I'm not, okay. I'm not positive. Okay. I think that uh, more likely the tiny little particles are uh, a byproduct, but maybe not. You know, maybe not. And the big question for me in more recent years has been, is it possible? I don't think it's possible from the human standpoint that an engineered plasma of some kind could be directed. I mean, if you had some huge, you know, big engine producing plasma, it would have to be awfully close to the Earth's surface if you're going to direct these microwaves because they dissipate, you know, right away. And in that case, you would expect that people would be reporting huge planes or huge platforms with this energy-making device, you know, over the field. And that is not reported ever, as far as I know. Uh, and consequently, it makes me think that if this is an engineered situation, not a naturally occurring phenomenon, then whatever it is, is so much more complex than we've even begun to guess. Right. You know, I hardly know where to start. Well, a lot of this recent work with Robert kind of indicates that. Let, let me ask you a related question to that. Let's go back to uh, the southern UK, which is where, you know, uh, let's assume the most, the largest amount of theoretical research has gone into that area. Has anybody ever studied seismographic charts uh, of the times when uh, crop circle manifestations are more abundant? Not to my knowledge. Hmm. I wonder if that might not be an interesting... Um, Approach. I don't think they have a lot of seismic activity in England. I don't think it's uh, there's a high incidence of seismic tremors and things there. Well, that would be make, make it even better than you'd have a baseline that would be close to quiet. So I guess that would then be even more useful as a way to determine if there was any kind, and even though we're not talking about significant, just any kind of seismic activity in that time as compared to baseline. Again, to try to even understand whether or not there's a potential that there is uh, something more related to subterranean sourcing. I mean, people are always looking at things being generated from above, but... Because the, uh, the evidence so far really does point in that direction. I mean, the, this uh, X-ray diffraction study that we ran a couple years ago, uh, in that case, what we were doing was looking at certain clay minerals in the soil. Clays respond to heat faster than other substances in the soils. And if Levengood's idea that microwave radiation or something that acts just like it is involved in all of this, the reasoning was, well, maybe we'll find in the soils, in the clays, evidence of exposure to these microwaves also. Now, remember, in this case, we're dealing with surface soil. In the uh, situation, the test study was done in uh, a crop circle up in Canada. And in this particular circle, it was actually, I think, seven, one, two, three, four, seven circle event, kind of a thought bubble sort of pictogram. 
We took the plants at uh, several hundred sampling locations inside and outside the formation. And then we took surface soil from immediately around the bases of the plants that we sampled. So we'd have a plant sample of, say, 10 or 15 plants, and we'd have a soil sample from exactly that same same location. But it was surface soil, the top interest of the soil. Then the, you know, the soils were sent off and the clays were extracted. Uh, I hired people, in this case, who had never heard of crop circles deliberately. I wanted to make sure I avoided any implication of bias on the part of the people doing the work. Mm-hmm. And so we just hired a professional mineralogist, and he extracted the clays from the samples, then mounted them on these little mounts that go in the X-ray diffraction machine, ran the machine, and produced you know, his results. Right. I then hired a totally separate, unknown to him and everybody else, statistician, with some background in MIT, so I figured he was probably pretty smart. And he went ahead and did the statistical analysis looking for a change in the crystalline structure of the clays, which would indicate they had been exposed to heat, you see. Right. Well, he found it. Uh, we did, in fact, have this change in the crystalline structure of the clays in the circle. But this is surface soil. This means that whatever the energy was that affected those clay minerals had to be coming from above. It would not, it couldn't possibly come from below. This sort of change in the crystalline structure in clays has only been seen before this study. It had never been seen anywhere except in sedimentary rock. In other words, mountains pressing down on uh, sediments for hundreds, thousands of years. It's caused by what they call geologic pressure or intense heat. I mean, six to eight hundred degrees Celsius is what the, the uh, guy at Dartmouth told us. Uh, consequently, it has never been seen in surface soil before because that kind of temperature in a crop circle field, it would have burned up the plants, of course. They weren't burned up. They were fine. And curiously, we found all of the changes in the plants that Levengood regularly has found for years at exactly the same sampling locations as we found these changes in the soils. In other words, it looks like whatever caused the plant changes also caused the change in clay minerals. And yet we know that there was no mountain sitting on top of this field, so that rules out the geologic pressure. And the temperature that would have been required to change these the crystalline structure being in the six to 800 degrees Celsius range would have incinerated the field. And it wasn't right. incinerated. Quick ancillary question. Well, I'm looking at this study. What I don't see a specific mention of uh, mention of are moisture absorption characteristics. Yeah, we weren't looking for that. I mean, that wasn't part of what the study was. Oh. Do you know of any data along those lines in terms of the potentially genuine crop circles? Um, there are no. There's no data. There are people who profess that idea that the the soils inside crop circles are drier than you know the uh, the control areas but there's been no study done to know for certain whether that is so hmm. in fact some of my field workers tell me fairly regularly that they find it easier to dig in the soils when they're doing sampling inside the crop circles than out so i don't know what the answer to that is Business travel is a profitability killer, you know that. 
So do more and travel less with GoToMeeting, the easiest, most affordable online meeting service. With just a click, launch sales presentations, training sessions, product demos, or collaborative sessions right from your desk. GoToMeeting is so easy to set up and use, you'll have your first meeting running in seconds. Plus, hold as many meetings as you want for one flat rate. Free VOIP and phone conferencing included. Try GoToMeeting free for 45 days. For this special offer, you must visit www.gotomeeting.com slash podcasts. That's www.gotomeeting.com slash podcasts for a free trial. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. Nancy Talbot of the BLT research team. We're talking about the crop circle mystery. So the question arises, of course, are the crop circles man-made, nature-made, or ET, or some other force made? What do you feel? Are you asking me? <laughs> sure, why not? I don't know. I More and more, I mean, I think that what I suspect is that natural forces are being utilized at the very least. Whether nature in the sense of an unconscious you know if you're describing nature as the as a, a totally unconscious uh, situation that i'm not so sure about anymore when i first began i thought that was likely but now i'm not so sure and a lot of the reason that my mind has changed some is this work that we've been doing with you know robert in holland and what i have seen there for 10 over 10 years now strongly suggests to me anyhow that there is a conscious agency of some kind and I don't know whether we're talking extra dimensional interdimensional extraterrestrial the unconscious you know Young's collective unconscious I don't know what but the it, it appears frequently over and over and over again in Robert's case that there is a consciousness exterior external to you and me and everybody else that's involved in all of this now, before we get to that, and obviously that's one of the main reasons we want you to come on the show today was to talk about this uh, Dutch fellow you've been studying for a number of years. In terms of the circles that you're comfortable stating are not man-made. Not mechanically terms, flattened, for sure. Right, correct. Let's take those and let's throw those out for a moment. Uh, let's throw those out for good, actually. Let's look at the designs of the ones that you feel confident are anomalous. In that set... Is there anything about the designs, the symbols, that has any logical pattern to you that you've been able to discern? You mean like a meaning associated with them? Any sort of... The pattern, yes. Meaning, uh, well, hold on. Not even meaning, specifically, but a pattern. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. All right. I mean, one one example that comes roaring to my head is the Julia set 
formation near Stonehenge back in 96, where you had this beautiful spiral, looked exactly like the kind of spiral that happens when you run water down the sink or over the tub or something, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and there are many of that ilk, which uh, we have worked on, that indicated that they were genuine. God, it's it's so terrible to be limited to financially to the point where you, I mean, when we're sampling, you're talking thousands of dollars to, to do the work in the field because it takes several days, particularly in a large one. Then you have to dry down all the plants if they're in Europe because you can't ship them when they're wet. Then you have to pay for the shipping. And then, of course, there's all the work that goes on in the lab. And without a lot of money, you can't do a huge number of them, which I personally would love to know more about. Very frustrating. Right. But, you know, when you're looking at just when you're, when you're doing the kind of uh, the research that goes along with that, and when I said, you know, when I asked you if there are any patterns that you can discern, th there, there are multiple sort of levels of, of introspection, I would call, uh, yeah. in terms of when you're looking at this, Right, and so what what you try to do it's kind of like the idea of when you're trying to brainstorm um, to break away from accepted models and accepted techniques. Sort of what happens when you take a bunch of musicians and you make them rotate their instruments, and so all of a sudden uh, the bass players on the drums, the drummers on guitar, the singers with the bass. Now you would think normally that would be just like a completely ridiculous exercise, but actually it's sort of an interesting exercise in terms of trying to completely break down modalities and to approach things from a completely new way, which sometimes yields insights. It doesn't always create hard information, but maybe even just in terms of trying to change the way that we think about things. So looking at, for example, when you, like I said, you, you take... I, mean, what, I don't that, quite get well, what... Let me, I'm, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring it to you now. Okay. Right? So when, when we talk about studying crop circle designs... Now you've taken the stuff that is not anomalous, you've put it aside, and now you have the circles that you know are, are odd, or that you suspect are odd. Now, that's a separate, you know, to, to, to be able to spend time and money, and we understand that, Nancy, having a podcast that is being done on a shoestring, yeah. you know, and trying to earn a living while doing things like taking the time to read information that our guests send us, that to read um, books so that when we ask questions that hopefully they're somewhat intelligent, um, it takes time to do all of that. And sure I know does. G and I both wish we had more time to do those things when we have guests on, for the same reason that you'd like to have more resources to do the work you do. We're, we're totally understanding of that. We, we feel your pain. <laughs> we, we really do. So, But the thing is, at a certain point, what you try to do is like step back. And what, what I was getting at with the question with patterns is, okay, so you see that the, the circles that you think are legitimately anomalous, are there patterns, you're saying there are patterns. So then that takes me to the next question. What If, if there are messages, what do you think they might be? Or uh, let me put this a little differently. What aren't the messages telling us? Well, Does that make any sense at all? I, get, I sort of get the drift. What I would say is uh, my personal impression is that the circle phenomenon uh, may be, uh, hey, wake up, pay attention. Simply that, when you talk about message, simply, hey, 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 wake up, wake up, pay attention, there's more going on. It could be that, that it's as simple as that. 
Right. I do, however, think, and I've talked to a number of uh, people with a lot of scientific background, in particular areas, you know, who have claimed that some of the circles encode precise messages which are uh, capable of being interpreted by people with a great deal of expertise in a particular narrow field. I remember a chemist telling me uh, of about, about a formation which he felt clearly represented some something that he was familiar with in his work in chemistry. We've heard this from a number of other people, and it may be that some circles are simply a wake-up call and others are encoding very precise information that you would have to be educated in that particular discipline to even understand. Obviously, I can't rule that out, and a number of people have so told me that they think that is the case. Uh, however, we're back to if, in fact, they have any purpose at all, even if it's just wake up and pay attention, that has got to indicate, I think, that there's a consciousness involved. I mean, who's saying wake up? Somebody's got to be doing it. And the question would be then, well, who? <laughs> I don't know. Let's, um, that sounds like a good segue to get into the case of, um, of Robert. And you should pronounce his last name so that we don't trash it. It's Robert Vandenbroek, B-R-O-E-K-E. And again, on the website, there is a listing on the menu. On the left-hand side, it says Vandenbroek case. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've now got a whole page on him because there's so much stuff going on. And it, I introduce it with a, just a little bit of his background and tell about these uh, emerging and growing, uh, I guess you'd call them psychic abilities. And I'm trying to give sort of an overview of the kind of things that go on. The most, the reason for being involved with Robert at all, at least in the beginning, was that he's the only person I know of or have even heard about anywhere in the world who constantly and continually, since he was about 14, predicts the when and where the new circles in his area will occur, and he knows what they're going to look like. And he's been doing this you know, since he was about 14. We have hundreds and hundreds of documented incidents of this, and I wrote up a whole series of them uh, a couple years ago uh, of events that occurred at a place called Woodenhead. Don't you love it? These are crop circles that occurred in that field in 2007. And in that situation, uh, I know because I've known Robert for so long that uh, these things that he re- you know, has reported actually happen. He gets uh, some sort of a... He feels, he perceives, sometimes in his mind's eye, sometimes in a more physical manner, an energetic presence. It's usually what he describes as an energetic presence when it's a crop circle thing that's going to happen. But there are many other things that happen around him, all sorts of poltergeist activity and remote viewing and out-of-body experiences and UFOs, ETs, I mean, you name it. And it's all happening, and it is increasing. But when it's going to be, when a crop circle is getting ready to happen, he gets a fairly distinct sense of some sort in his body and he can then sit down and draw what it's going to look like and where it's going to appear and you go to wherever he says and bingo bingo (laughs) there's the crop circle and I discussed all of this in this 2007 this Woodenhead report because it was it was so funny the farmer who owns that field 
happens to own another field in Robert's hometown, Hooven, and has had many circles appear on his property, and he hates him. He does not like it one little bit, and in fact had accused Robert uh, of making them. So Robert doesn't go out at night in the fields alone ever anymore because he doesn't want to be accused. But this farmer, the one who has the field near Robert's house, was the farmer who had rented the field at this place called Woodenhead. And I thought that was priceless. I mean, on his land, and here he is miles away from Robert's house, he rents a field, he hates crop circles, and what happens? That summer, five of them or six of them or seven of them happened in the field he rented. And furthermore, it was in a town called, which translates to Woodenhead. I thought that was pretty funny. Be careful what you don't wish for. Yeah. <laughs> At any rate, I mean, in this instance, there were multiple events which occurred in 2007, besides him just predicting them. Uh, many people were with him on varieties of these occasions, uh, with him in the field, because he won't go alone, because he doesn't want to be accused of making these things. And they witnessed all and a huge range of very strange events going on with crop circles opening up in the field as they were present. I mean, sometimes right in front of them. In a number of those circles, there was also a deposit of white powder. And these deposits were found, if I remember, it was in three of the circles. And the material was collected very quickly. We sent it to uh, a guy in the Netherlands, actually, to do the initial work. And in each case, what we found was that the white powder was a very pure magnesium carbonate. Now, this isn't an unearthly substance. It's used in all kinds of things. But in the particular chemical uh, situation with this magnesium carbonate, we were able to demonstrate that it is the type we would use in fire extinguishers. That's what, A fire retardant is what it is. Now, why did this stuff appear in these in these fields in the middle of crop circles? Uh, in one instance, Robert's mother and uh, one of his friends witnessed as he literally physically disappeared in front of them. He ceased to be where he was. They saw a red ball of light that was bouncing up and down in this area uh, where he had been. Then they saw the ball it changed. It did all kinds of things. Some a minute or so later, it had moved uh, to another section in the field and it started bouncing up and down, uh, directly up and down, just I mean, up over the plants. And boom, Robert reappears. I mean, his body is suddenly there. He was aware that something had happened, but he was so confused. I mean, he didn't, he didn't know what had happened. He simply knew something had. And he had to ask his mother and this uh, woman who was with her what they saw, and they described it, and I wrote it all up and put it, you know, in the Woodenhead Report. What does this mean? I mean, in one case, in one of these formations, he saw with his eyes this time something he has seen elsewhere and has many photographs of, I might add. But this time he saw what his drawing certainly looks like an E.T. standing in the edge of the field. And he said it slowly turned its head toward him. This thing had big bushy eyebrows, by the way. Flashed its eyes, something, a yellow beam of some sort came out of the eyes and hit Robert. And he felt instantly sort of an electrical charge had the sense that this thing, whatever it was, knew him in a profound sense. And then uh, he, he was scared. At that point, he turned around and ran. When he got to his, where his parents were, they went back to the spot. The 
creature, whatever it was, was gone, and exactly where it had been was this brand new crop circle with, again, the white powder. Oh, boy. Nancy, we're going to break for our hourly break, but for those who want to learn more about the strange case of Robert Vandenbroek and other stuff, tell us where to contact you and to check out your material. It's all on the BLT website, which is bltresearch.com, and if you scroll down to the Vandenbroek case on the menu, there's a whole page of amazing events which go on around Robert. Okay, this is bltresearch.com, and by the way, we have a link at theparacast.com. We'll explore more of the crop circle mysteries and the strange case of Robert Vandenbroek on the other side of the Paracast. Welcome back to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Vietti. Nancy Talbot of the BLT research team. What does the BLT stand for, by the way, the names of the people participating? The original founders, which were John Burke, William Levengood, and me, Nancy Talbot. Okay. And I had to incorporate the, the, the clay mineral XRD study we were talking about last was funded by Lawrence Rockefeller. And he insisted that uh, I incorporate, I had to have a corporate entity for him to give the money to. Mm-hmm. And so at some at one point, in order to get the money, I went ahead and did incorporate us as a nonprofit tax-exempt uh, corporation because it was his money that paid for that XRD study, and I wouldn't have had it otherwise. So if we donate to you, we can deduct it from our tax returns while Obama lets us do it. Absolutely. Is he, is he claiming or is he expecting to, to change that? I don't know. I think for people who make a lot of money, but since David and I don't fit in that category, I don't think we have to worry about it. Yeah, I don't think I do either. (laughs) One of the interesting things that I really want to point out is the reason why Robert, in my opinion, is important to the crop circle, to understanding crop circles or studying them, is, number one, because he knows when and where they're going to happen, and this has been going on for years, and because all of these other events, things that... I mean, we humans label a whole variety of amazing phenomena differently. We call some things poltergeist activity and some things uh, remote viewing and some things UFOs and some things crop circles. In Robert's situation, in his case, what I have observed is that all of these things go on with increasing uh, frequency as he gets older. He's 29 now. And... It appears to me, therefore, that the crop circles are a part of, a are related somehow to all of these other phenomena which we have labeled variously. I don't think they are separate things. I think they're part of some uh, larger unknown thing that none of us can yet accurately name, you know? So, Nancy, if you've got a situation where... You have um, ongoing events in close proximity to someone with some level of predictability. Tell me that Robert owns a video camera and that he's been able to go out and capture a crop circle in formation. I've seen two of them happen when I was right with him. I needed a damn camera. I was standing right there. Well, but see, okay, so I have to, because our audience expects it of us, I have to put on my my technical hat, my skeptical hat, if you would. Go for it. 
we're, well, you've got a situation where there's an on, like I said, there's an ongoing uh, set of episodes in close proximity to someone. Why isn't there video? Uh, is there video? Sure, there's some video. First of all, you are assuming you're making certain assumptions, which you would have no way not to make them, I suppose. Right. But you're assuming that Robert has the same interests you do. He doesn't. Robert is absolutely uh, certain that the all this all these phenomena are from a spiritual source. He doesn't mean religion. He's talking of the spirit. And he doesn't know what the ultimate purpose is. He doesn't know why himself. But his interest in all of this is really to participate in and hopefully discover eventually the purpose behind this spiritual energy. He's not, he doesn't care whether you believe it or not. He doesn't care really if much of anybody does. He knows, he feels that it is important for him to share what he has learned, what he sees, as best he can. Remember, he's 29 years old, and he doesn't know, he doesn't have all the answers to what it is, but he seems to feel that you and I and anyone else who's interested in spiritual reality should be made aware of these events, which is why I'm writing up all these reports for him. It's so that people can be aware of what goes on. Uh, I took, I don't know, you probably know who Dr. William Roll is? Sure, absolutely. Parapsychologist. Right. I mean, a very eminent American parapsychologist. And Roll has, I've known him for years and he knew all about Robert. Turned out he was able to get to Holland, uh, in 2008. Uh, and we arranged to all meet over there together. And so he got to meet Robert firsthand and did experience himself exactly the same things everybody else does who are around Robert. Uh, had no idea how to explain it. Uh, we took this most recent report I've put up that's on the light phenomena photographs. Have you seen it? Have you looked at that? Yeah, I don't want to get into that yet, Nancy. We're going to, oh. come, we're going to, we're going to get to that eventually. But I'm a little concerned, uh, and I'll tell you why. Uh, if Robert wants people to help expand their understanding, even of a spiritual reality of this, right? Then that that then you're indicating to me that he he wants to teach people something. Would that be a fair assessment? He, he wants, wants to share what his experiences are. Okay. In the hope that these experiences will help other people understand the spiritual aspect of life, okay. I think. I think that would sure. be the correct way to say it. All right. Okay, so he wants to share the experiences from a, just a basic logical point of view. In fact, no, I take that back. From a basic rational point of view, not even logical, just rational, the opportunity... Having a situation where you know ahead of time something's going to happen. You have a pretty good sense of where it's going to happen. It's an anomalous thing that you know people will ask the question of, well, if you want to share this with me, if you want me to learn from this, we're human beings. Visual aids do wonders for us. And that's why I put up all these reports with all the photographs. It's exactly why I'm doing it. The visual aids help people. I mean, you, right. another thing, there are many things about Robert that you don't know, uh, one of which is that his family is extremely protective 
and his father is um the way to say this uh, refuses to uh participate in situations where people doubt Robert. Uh, he's a Dutchman, Robert's father, of course, mm -hmm. and does he was manager of one of the of the biggest bank in Holland for years. He does not take well to people in, even insinuating that his son or anybody in his family are misrepresenting truth. Uh, he takes that very seriously. Uh, Robert also, just so you know, is not at all technically inclined. Some of these events which have occurred have caused the professional debunkers in Holland to claim that Robert was uh, using a computer to do some of the various stuff he does. And they had no way of knowing because they didn't bother to call Robert or go to his house or in any way try to follow up. But Robert didn't have a computer. And up until very recently, he did not have one. And even now, he doesn't know how to use it for much of anything. But that's, you know, the point is that people jump to these conclusions that he is like other modern people. He is not. His interests are in the spiritual arena. He is not a uh, techno, you know, not even vaguely into that sort of thing. Right. And these cameras that we give him or that he has of his own, the cameras are set in auto because he doesn't know how to do much of anything else with them. Simply auto. And then they function however they function, right. you know, when shots are taken. Nancy, um, I'm not making any insinuations. I'm asking some intellectually honest questions here. And well, I'm trying the to thing answer is, Well, the thing is, if you want to bring up Dutch qualities, um, having spent some time in the Netherlands, one thing I can tell you is that the Dutch are a highly pragmatic people. Yeah. Um, the, I, I think it's certainly fair to say that they're very practical, very pragmatic, very down-to-earth people. I'm, I um, think they are, too. So yeah. what is... I don't understand what the question is, then. Well, I, I think that if you've got a situation, like I said before, where you're trying to share information... Well, what, what are you talking about now? You're talking about videotape? I'm talking about, vi it, it, yeah, video, specifically Well, video. number one, he's got to have a video uh, camera, right? Sure. So how do you know he has a video camera? I don't know that and he why, has Why would you not. assume I'm, he did? I'm, who's assuming anything? I'm asking you that if he knows that these things are going on, haven't you brought up to him, for example, that he should have? No, I don't camera? try to, to direct him to do anything. If you knew him, you'd know why. There is a video camera owned by the family. It is generally kept locked up. Robert doesn't have access to it. Occasionally, the father will, will let him have it. And on those occasions, he has shot video of creatures, of light balls, of all sorts of weird stuff. Really? Uh, the father, however, does not allow that material to be made public. Now, <laughs> that's the way it is. Robert himself, I think, would probably make all this stuff public, but the father controls a great deal of what does and doesn't happen in that particular household. Robert, because of his, he has been different from uh, other people since he was, they noticed it when he was around four is when it began. And he hears and sees all kinds of things that other people don't. They at one point thought that perhaps he had a psychological problem, and he was actually hospitalized 
in a psychiatric institute for a period of time some years ago because the parents were positive that it had to be some sort of psychiatric aberration. Mm-hmm. They could find none. You know, they found nothing at all abnormal. He's very intelligent, uh, totally lucid. He knows exactly what's going on around him, but he has very little interest in... I mean, he's not interested in or concerned about the same kinds of things you or I are. I do my best when I'm with him to get what I can to document what I see happening right in front of my eyes. But there's some things I don't have any control over at all. And this videotape, I'm not very technically savvy myself. I did finally buy a camera myself. And next time I go, I'm going to take it with me. Whether he'll use it or not, I don't know. A hypothetical question here. What is his command of English and would he submit to interviews like the Faracast? No. His his English is not good enough. I mean, I understand we have kind of a pig Latin thing, but he doesn't God, it's so hard to say this. His I I think on his own Robert probably would. Uh but his father does not want this. Because the skeptics or the debunkers in in Holland have attacked them terribly, just terribly. And this absolutely irritates the Dickens out of the father. Uh, Robert, I don't think, I don't think it bothers him that much. But he's also very interested in having the material presented in a very plain, very straightforward fashion, which is why he's got me writing all this stuff because I don't try to interpret, I don't try to tell people how they're supposed to think about it. I'm trying just to to let them know it's happening. And I think at some point down the road, he doesn't travel right now uh, at all. And I'm hoping that at some point down the road, this changes. He seems to feel, in my recent conversations with him, he's beginning to say he thinks that he probably is going to have to travel. Um, He's just not ready to do it yet. And, you know, I have no, I can't make him do anything. He does what he feels he should do. He feels very much that he is in contact with some sort of consciousness, intelligence, some great spiritual thing. And he pretty much tries to do what he feels is appropriate. You know, that he'll get a feeling when he's supposed to do something different. And I don't know, I'm not inside his head, so... I pretty much follow what he suggests about what he wants to do or what he thinks should be done next. Hi, this is Timothy Green Beckley, otherwise known as Mr. UFO, reporting live for the Conspiracy Journal. And we have a special offer for the listeners of the Paracast. Want to receive our publications for free? Conspiracy Journal and Bizarre Bizarre sent to you via snail mail. And all you have to do is email me at MrUFO at WebTV.net. That's MRUFO at WebTV.net. And we'll send you two of the most exciting publications. But we do need your actual address because these are physical publications. And you'll enjoy all the latest articles by some of the leading researchers in the field, as well as up-to-date information on the latest book and videos and it's all for free or drop us a line mr ufo at webtv.net hi this is nick pope you're listening to the paracast with gene steinberg and david bietney 
We have Nancy Talbot. We're talking about the story of Robert Vandenbroek, who has had psychic experiences, is surrounded by crop circles, and has undergone some amazing encounters over the last number of years. David. I think it's kind of interesting, Nancy, that Robert's, you say he's 29 now? Correct. He still lives at home? Well, he doesn't have any schooling because he could not stay in school because of the fact that his attention is constantly drawn to this other situation. Mm-hmm. Uh, so his schooling stopped. I don't, I don't remember whether he got through the sixth grade or not, but he has no formal education, therefore no way to earn a living. He also has no interest in uh, material things at all. And, I mean, I've never met anybody quite like him. I don't claim to have all the answers, but his attention is focused on the spiritual reality behind these events. That's what he pays attention to. The rest, he doesn't care at all. Has no particular concept of money. I don't mean that he's a guru type. He's not at all. If you just happen to meet him in a gathering, let's say a party or something, although he won't go to parties, but if he did, you would, he would seem absolutely typical to you. You'd see nothing unusual. But where his heart is and where his attention really always is, is in this other arena. And consequently, he's not very well suited to uh, live on his own. I'm not sure he'd feed himself. Mm. So that's very curious. I know it is. Believe me, <laughs> I know it's odd. Well, to what does he attribute these things happening? I mean, I've told you as best I can, as best I understand it, he is. His feeling is that he is in contact with uh, a spiritual reality outside of our ordinary experience. Mm-hmm. He assumes that there is some purpose to this, although he doesn't know what it is. Uh, he has become, in recent years, a healer and has hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people who come to him wanting uh, what they call readings or healing sessions. And these people feel that he, in fact, is accurate in his readings, and they apparently uh, feel that he helps them with their physical problems. Whether that's his ultimate destiny to, you know, to be a healer, I don't know. He's not sure either. It's just it's something he can do now, so he does it. The father's okay with that? Yes, the father is, has accepted that and built him a small uh, office where he sees the clients. And uh, it's taken years. The father and the parents, the father more so than the mother, uh, denied the reality of all of this for years and years and years and years. They now know it's real. And they, like Robert, don't quite know why or what is supposed to happen. But uh, you can't be around him very long before you start to realize also that there is something we don't understand going on around Robert. And I hope also that there's some purpose. I mean, he can he can do these things like take metal objects and stick them on his head and make them stay. Well, this is fine. This is a nice parlor trick. But, you know, what the hell? how to interpret all these strange abilities, the fact that he now photographs regularly people who have died. My next report is all about that. And when I was with him in 2007, my own brother 
had died in June of 2007. I was already had a ticket to go to see Robert in August. And when I got there, Robert told me he thought my brother was going to appear uh, on my camera. Now, it's my camera. I keep it in a lock case. It's a simple point-and-shoot, you know, digital. Very first day I was there, we went off into the fields in daylight to a field where there had been, I think it was, it was the same, the Woodenhead field where there were all these crop circles that had been there. And we walked into the field and almost immediately he told me that my brother was present and could I could he use my camera. And I took it out of its case, handed it to him and stood right with him while he then shot 50 shots in a row of my brother's face. I couldn't see my brother. I saw air. But on the on the pictures, it's my brother. Robert doesn't know my brother, never met him. Wouldn't have known him if he fell on him. You know, I don't know how to explain that, but it happened. And it's one of hundreds of these incidents that I have observed myself. And <laughs> consequently, I'm pretty convinced it's for real. I've never seen any indication that he, if, if anything, Robert understates, as do his parents, what is going on. They put out only the tiniest bit of what's going on, and I'm the only person that's been allowed to write in any depth about them because I stay with the family every year for several weeks, and we've all gotten to know each other, and they trust me. But they don't want this situation sensationalized. They don't want it uh, corrupted. They want it to be taken seriously, all of them, because they take it very seriously. In the process of um, trying to understand it, I mean, in order to take something seriously, you have to understand it, right? And the well, they don't understand it, so how in the hell do you expect yourself to? <laughs> I mean, I don't understand it. Should we uh, not want to understand it? Of course they want to, but, okay. uh, you know, they get, have not been base, able to figure Nancy, it out. Nancy, let's get a baseline here, all right? Um, we're curious about this, which is why we're asking you about it. I'm a little concerned, because when I asked you before about the video camera, you got very defensive. Uh, because listen. what you're doing here is making this assumption that Robert's interests are the same as yours, and they're not. I Does don't, he want to I understand it? Does he want to understand it? I think, I think on, I can't say this for sure because remember, I don't speak Dutch. Right. I mean, this is in our pigden exchanges. I think he is convinced enough himself of the spiritual nature of what's going on. And secondly, he believes that eventually he is going to get some sort of clearer understanding of why, at which point I am certain he will go as public as he can go to tell people whatever it is he's learned. So he wants the understanding delivered to him. Well, he's hoping it happens. It's hard to imagine that all of this stuff goes on for no reason. It may be no reason. But he, I think he's hoping that there is a purpose behind it and that he will eventually himself know what that purpose is or understand it better, thus meaning, you know, making it possible for him to tell other people. Right now he can't tell you very much. He can only tell you that these things occur. He doesn't know why. He doesn't understand it. Well, he doesn't know why. So he doesn't, under, he doesn't know why... Knowing would be having all of the facts in front of him. He knows it's happening. He doesn't know why. And he assumes, or maybe he hopes, that at some point he will understand why. I'd say hope. I'd say he hopes. 
uh, I mean, being intelligent, it's hard for him to think that all of this stuff that he's been through, it's, it's a hell of a life to live. He's very isolated from almost everything you find in your day-to-day life. He doesn't have associations like most people do in you know their day-to-day life. He's not interested in all of the um, sort of material things that many people are interested in. His only interest is this, and allowing whatever this is to work through him, he is believing, you know, he believes that this is a positive situation, not negative, and that it will be at some point useful to mankind. And he talks, when he's talking about the energy, a lot of times he'll tell me uh, it's, that it's love. And when, you, when he talks about it and you're right there watching him, you can feel what he, what he means. Um, it's, I mean, it seems that he's in touch with some energetic situation which feels overwhelmingly like love to him. And he believes that it is something beneficial to mankind and that he apparently is some sort of an instrument or conduit and he's hoping there's some purpose which he be, you know he gets so he understands at some point right mm-hmm. now he really doesn't but again he he assumes or he hopes that the understanding will be delivered to him from whatever that the source it will occur is. as he continues you know to follow this path mm-hmm. that i remember one time he told me uh, i asked him about some of these light phenomena photos they're just bloody amazing and i asked him how how he'd started to get such photos and he told me, this is the first time I ever really understood this, he would be aware of these energies being present. And it came into his head one time to hold, to get, take the camera, to take a camera, which the family had, and hold it up to his temple while he closed his eyes and focused on the energy, you know, trying to be in touch with the energy. And that when he did that, some of these strange photos started to occur. And so he did this many, many times. He, he, he liked it. And he found, he trained himself, I think, to his brain to go into some sort of a, a mode when these energies are around. And now he doesn't have to hold the camera up to his forehead. He can do anything he wants with it. But that was, it was kind of like a biofeedback thing he was doing, you see? Right. And well, over the years, it simply expanded. Now, I've looked at um, a number of the photographs. Which one? Which report are you on? Uh, well, let's see. The February 2009. The light phenomena thing, yeah. Right. Um, I'll tell you what, now, Dave, let's give everybody a cliffhanger. Ray Perkins, a reclusive veteran burned out from the Gulf War, lives tortured by relentless, perplexing nightmares. Nightmares of a horrific battle in deep space and of a mysterious woman suffering in agony for her devastated world. A woman not yet born, calling across centuries to him. Then, a coincidence leads him to his destiny, his chance to alter the universe. Attack Attack of the Rockoids. The former fiction editor for Star Wars and Indiana Jones, Robert Simpson, writes, The soul of the novel Attack of the Rockoids lies in its heart and passion for building a convincing tale of a love that spans the galaxy. A thrilling story. Attack of the Rockoids is available now. Read a sample chapter and get a special discount off of the cover price at our website, rockoids.com. That's R-O-C-K-O-I-D-S dot com. Attack 
of the Rockwell, a novel in the grand science fiction tradition. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. As David examines the photos and reports about them, we are talking to Nancy Talbert of the BLT Research Team, Incorporated, and we're exploring the strange case of psychic Robert Vandenbroek. David. So, Nancy, um, are you familiar with the Dorothy Isaac case? Yeah, and she gets a lot of images that are very similar to Robert's. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, in looking at uh, this two, uh, February 2009 report, there are specifically a number of the images towards the top of the page. The which, fuzz, are, I, which part are you on? Part one, I, two, three, four, or five? I'm on part one. Okay. All right. I'm looking at the fuzzed light in kitchen, right? The brilliant light ring. Looking at those, the chandelier is on camera flashes only. Uh, other right, right. I've got them. I've got them up too. Those right and. Listeners who are listening to the show now can be reviewing these same images. A number of these images do look quite a bit like some of the stuff that Dorothy Isa has captured on motion picture film, specifically. And in, in Isaac's case, what's especially interesting is that, um, and one of the things that makes a number of her images so compelling, is that, uh, for example, there are images of hers where her name is written with the lights, except that the exposure time is like a 24th of a second. So the idea of shaking the camera, the idea of faking such an image is like next to impossible. It's just not something you could really pull off, certainly not someone with a handheld camera making out her name on one film of exposure. So in her case... We can do some analysis on the footage because of the fact that we know about things like exposure times. We know about things like, in her case, there are a sequence of sequential frames. Why are you talking about her case instead of Robert's here? Because I think maybe we can learn something about Robert's case through hers. Because in similarities, maybe we can detect some sourcing because that's research. That's why I'm talking about her case, because I'd like to know a little bit about the equipment. It's a 35-millimeter film camera, correct? No, you have to read my report. I mean, I've written down exactly what cameras are involved. Right. I'm looking. I'm using the family's 35-millimeter film camera, right? So that's the 90s. Some of the images he has taken with film. Mm -hmm. Some he has taken with digital. Right. Some in this report I stuck... There are some that are taken with his own camera early on, uh, but then all the rest of them are my camera when I was present uh, with him. Well, in the report, and it's some not, of them, it's not a few specified. of them, are shots I took personally with my camera. Right. I guess one of the reasons I'm asking this, Nancy, is that looking at the photos, you don't spec what camera was used. That's why I'm asking. 
In various places, I, I write about the cameras, but right, not with not, each photo. There are hundreds of them with each here. photo, right. So I have no way... No one would have any way of knowing what camera was used to generate, let's say, for example. If you read it, it tells you very clearly. I, I outline which cameras are being used, but you, I don't put it with each photograph. Uh, actually, I'm thinking about maybe here. I think it's part four. Yeah, part four. Go to part four. No, actually, I'm going to stand part one for a moment, if you don't mind. Well, you want to oh. talk about cameras. I did put, we had a guy from Germany who came to visit us. And he had uh, a different camera. And so what I did was compare a number of shots from his camera and from mine where you have information about the camera. Right, no, but I, I'm curious about specific images at the moment. On um, part one, for example, there's a, a very compelling image. One of the most compelling images, to be perfectly honest with you, the fuzzed light in kitchen, light stripes in front of a Buddha head statue. I'm curious whether or not that was shot with a digital camera or a film camera. It is not specified. It will be in the writing. You have to read the text. Now, let me see. I'm uh, reading the text, and it does not appear to be there. That image is, is presented again in, in a context of a whole bunch where the camera is probably outlined there. Okay, majority of photographs taken with my Pentax Optio 33WR digital camera. Do, 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 do. And doesn't it say, it does say, all photos in this report were taken by Robert unless otherwise noted. So now I go down to that film. Okay, it was shot with my Pentax. I just said that in the paragraphs up above. Okay, so that was shot with a digital camera. That was a single photograph shot. There was no, uh, there wasn't a sequence of, of images taken. Those were just still, those aren't out of sequences. Those are just one-off shots, correct? It depends. Some of them are in sequences, some of them aren't. And again, I've written all of this. There's quite a lot of detail if you read the report. And in, when you get into particular sections, you know, I tell you whether it was a sequence or not. I can't afford to show you every single sequence of every single photo because it, it costs enough as it is to get this put up the way it is. But, I mean, I have thousands of these shots. And Robert has many, many, many thousands more. Uh, sometimes the events, the strange images occur only a couple at a time. Sometimes they'll go on for 15 or 20 minutes as long as you want to keep shooting. But you really have to read the text, I think, to get a good grasp of what's going on. If you go to part four, I do have this German guy's camera. He was with us on that particular outing, and he had a couple of cameras that he used when we were getting these incredible light ring photos. The first batch of them are all taken with my camera, the Pentax. And then when Andreas arrived, uh, there were another whole group that occurred on his cameras. And, you know, with him standing right there with us while these were all taken. Mm -hmm. In part four, that first whole batch is the Pentax. That's my camera. And then if you keep scrolling down... You just mean the first whole batch, not of Robert's face, but of the light ring? In part four. In part yeah. four. Yeah, you scroll down to the section called light rings. Mm-hmm. Now, the very first one is one Robert took. It says right there, you know, back in 2000. Uh, that was taken with a three mega cam, whatever that is. I don't even know what that is. That might have been a movie camera. Uh, then below it is another one that he took at the same time. Then you start with the rings taken with my Pentax. And what I've done is shown the original and then an enhanced version so you can see what the light conditions actually were. Frequently, when these phenomena occur, 
the light conditions apparent in the picture are different from what it really was. It was not dark, for instance, when those first uh, uh, rings were photographed. And if you keep going through that section, you're going to get eventually to the Olympus. This is uh, one of Andreas's cameras, and it's an Olympus E330, he called it. And there are a number of shots with that camera. Then he came back on another visit with a different camera. That one was a Supra DC 860. And again, the rings occurred. So um, I'm going to just ask you a question for a moment about, let's talk about the first issue, bro, which is that the light. Can, uh, I, also, dark- can I say one other thing to you? Because this may interest you. The very last photograph in part four is of a complete ring. And that's all you see in the frame. Mm-hmm. I took that picture <laughs> okay. with the Pentax. Didn't see a bloody thing. I had just been asking uh, out loud the, the powers that be. I wanted to see a ring, a crop circle ring, in a maize field, a cornfield. And Robert and I had gone out to a place where there was a lot of corn growing. And I was simply asking, can't you make one in corn? Because I like them when they're in corn. They're quite dramatic. And it did not, no circle occurred in the corn. And later I realized this bloody ring came on my camera that night when I was asking for that. I didn't figure that out for about two years after I took it. So coming back up to the, that's quite all right. Coming back up to the rings up towards the top of this page. Sure. Um, we have the um, Pentax Ring E original top with contrast added in the bottom. So, what what you say then is that the photo at the top is darker than the actual light conditions. That you're saying the actual light conditions are more accurately represented by the contrast enhanced version below. Correct. Yes. Yes. All right. This was taken with your camera. My camera and me standing right with him. Okay. So the camera was in um, auto-exposure mode? Correct. All right. Uh, A camera in auto-exposure mode would basically take a dark photo based on there being some kind of either A, light source, or B, light energy right in front of the sensor, which would change either the the exposure time or the uh, shutter speed to accommodate for what the camera was perceiving as an abundant amount of light or light energy. I know right? that. So, well, that's what automatic exposure is. Exactly. Um, all right. So in these cases, you're saying there was nothing in, in front of you, right? No, we're out in the middle of a field, you know, miles away from anything, no right. lights of any sort. All right. But yet the camera picked up something, and that something was such that it was definitely emitting enough energy or light to change the automatic exposure of the camera. I mean, if you're trying to find a reason for why the picture came out so dark, certainly from a mechanical point of view, if like how a camera automatic camera and automatic exposure works, that's how it works. That's what it does. So Yeah, except that there wasn't any light, any visible light there. And the camera clearly picked up something because it did it over and over and over again. When mm-hmm. our eyes, I mean Robert's eyes, my eyes, and Andreas's eyes in this case, we, none of us, saw with our eyes anything. Robert felt the energy present, as he usually does. But he didn't see anything, and neither did we. 
and yet hundreds of people, not hundreds, actually in this case there was maybe 50 or 60 of these light rings that occurred. Right. Well, certainly there's, you know, uh, not having been there, I obviously don't know what was there. I'm just looking at photographs. Look at and number ring D. It's the yeah, second that's one I'm looking down. At the one right, the right, right below it, correct? And yeah, you see the see the what I'm sure are reflections in the camera's opt, optics. You see the reverse. Absolutely, absolutely sure. I mean, doesn't that sort of mean there has to have been a light source in front of that camera because it's um, reflected in the yeah. picture? Oh, absolutely. Uh, that's what I was about to say. I mean, that reflection couldn't have happened if there wasn't light interacting with the optics. And yet. Looking, I was looking, you know, right where he was, right where he was pointing the camera, standing right next to him, and I didn't see anything, and neither did he. And yet, it looks to me like the image has clearly, it's reflecting light inside the camera optics. I don't know how that can be. Now, you're you're there with Robert as a researcher, correct? Mm, mostly, yes. I'm also his friend now. I understand that, but but the reason you're there to begin with is that you're researching Robert and what's happening around him. I'm trying to document it, at the very least, accurately. Right. I'm not sure my particular abilities are enough to... I mean, I, I tend to go to people who are professionals. Like right now, we're used, we have a guy from MIT who's doing analysis of these photos for us because he has expertise in this area. I don't really. But it's fair for me to say... You're interested in understanding what's going on here? Maybe? Oh, yeah. Okay. I think it would be a very useful exercise, potentially, the next time you do this, if you're interested in maybe expanding a little bit of understanding of what's potentially happening here, that when, when you're out with him shooting something like this, it might be very helpful in terms of understanding what's going on to have a third person with either a video camera or a very high-quality still camera, digital preferably, I think, at this point, shooting the two of you shooting. I think that would be an incredibly useful thing. A, yeah, to see I think if... it might be. Uh, okay. So to see what effect happens on their camera. And I think video here would be especially interesting. Um, now, I tried to do that when... Yeah. Dr. Wohl was with us, and in right. the last part of this, you will see the images that appeared on Dr. Wohl's camera. Mm -hmm. And part of the problem is, number one, we never know what is going to appear, period. I mean, when, when he has these feelings, you never know what the hell it is that's actually going to happen. It's when it's just me with him, I have to be watching him. You know, if I'm going to rule out fakery of some kind, i got to be watching the front of that camera, the lens. Is sure. he holding anything in front of it? Blah, blah, blah. And sometimes, uh, with Dr. Roll, it was a very productive visit. He, he was quite comfortable with Roll's presence. Some people, their vibe is not right. Now, if Dr. Roll had been able to stay longer, we talked about that, Roll and, and Robert and I, uh, that, you know, Roll could be watching Robert while I was videotaping or vice versa. Uh, but it has to be somebody whose basic vibe, I guess for lack of a better word, uh, doesn't interfere with the process itself. In Dr. Roll's case, it was fine. But, and with Andreas, it was fine. But not with everybody. So, to me, though, what that suggests, potentially, I'm not saying we know this, but just it suggests 
and we're gonna, uh, we haven't really talked about the formation of crop circles around Robert yet. Um, but this all sort of points back to, I think, this potential, for example, these light anomalies potentially being somehow telekinetically created by Robert. I don't I mean, think is that, so. That, is I know everybody, everybody makes that assumption, or a lot of people jump to that conclusion. All I can tell you is what he says. I've asked him about this, of course. Uh, my personal impression is that that is not what is going on, but forget that for the moment. What right. Robert says is that whatever all this is, it is coming from this external energy source through him. It's a, he's a conduit of some kind. I have stood right with Robert enough times now when this kind of stuff is going on, and I have watched him jump when something occurs that he's not expecting, mm -hmm. and he jumps as high as anybody else. The first time a human face appeared on my camera with me standing right there, it scared the dickens out of me. I mean, it jumped like I'd been shot. Well, he did too, because he had no idea it was coming. Let me ask you a quick question here that occurs to me, Nancy, yeah. and that is, okay, are there instances where Robert will have an impression, but nothing happens? Zilch, nothing. And before you answer that question... Fate Magazine is proud to be celebrating its 60th anniversary and its 700th issue. That's 60 years of bringing you true reports of the strange and unknown. Keep up with the latest on angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, life after death, and much, much more. It's bigger and better than ever. Subscribe now by calling 1-800-728-2730 or online at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. We have one more segment to spend with Nancy Talbot of the BLT research team. We're talking about the strange case of psychic Robert Vandenbroek. Okay, so the question being, how many failures are there? Well, I don't know that failure is the correct word. Uh, Robert, I have never been with him when he told me he felt something present when anomalies did not occur. I've never had that happen. However, sometimes he will want an anomaly to occur because somebody's present, you know, who's never seen it before, and it doesn't necessarily occur at that instant, sometimes it takes 5, 10, 15 minutes before they start. <laughs> I know that he has uh, well, some stuff I can't tell you, but I think that there are cases where he very much hopes something will happen because there's somebody who's very skeptical there, you know, he's trying to show them that, yes, it will, but it won't always happen in that circumstance. I'm not skeptical anymore because I've seen too much. And although I'm still watching and trying to figure out as best I can what's going on, I know that whatever this is, uh, it's not, the Robert's not manufacturing it. And so when my presence 
In fact, when I go, often whatever the numbers of these events are seems to increase often, or they become slightly different than they were before I was there. And I've thought that maybe it's the combination of his energy and mine that sometimes has something to do with the type of anomaly that occurs. Although another thing we've noticed is that the anomalies have changed over the years. In, you know, for a long time there were those orangey strikes and the, the room would turn orangey. Then in this report I point out that at some point years ago we started noticing that instead of the orangey overtone, the pictures would be black or dark black when that was not the lighting. Or the same thing would happen outside. Uh, when the people appear in these images outside, regardless of whether it's pitch black night or afternoon, the flash will not fire. It never fires if there's a, a human image in it, and even if it's pitch black midnight dark. Now, on your digital camera, now the pictures that you have up on your website are, are downsampled. These are not the original resolution images, correct? These are downsampled images from your original they're redone for the web I mean the sizing right. is done for the web of course right there's nothing else I, I mean if anything else has been done to any image I've said that right uh, so they're original except for whatever the sizing thing does for it I don't do that the web the web person does it right right your, your digital camera shoots JPEG images yeah I guess <laughs> I don't really know what it all I know is that I produce I go to the store after we've taken I take a chip out after every session and save the chips right. and go and I have discs made okay. and then the discs have all the pictures on them and the pictures are in JPEG format whether the but camera's doing that or the the guy at the at the place who prints it I don't know the reason I asked the question is that so you have the original chips with the original digital files from the camera you don't write over those. You keep those, no, correct? No, I keep all those separately. So potentially you have all the originals, which would have what we call um, XMP metadata. They have basically right. all the data from the camera, including, for example, uh, telling you what apertures things right. were shot at, what speeds, whether or not the flash trigger. You have all that stuff, right? Correct. So if people potentially wanted to, people like myself, an image analyst, want to look at some of these images more carefully, you would potentially be open to sharing oh, yeah. some of the original data. Okay, see, that's, that's what the MIT guy that I'm working with, that's, I mean, it's what he works on. Right. And, okay. you know, the whole idea, I don't know enough about photography to make intelligent statements, so I keep everything so that when somebody comes along who does know about this stuff, mm -hmm. that whatever I've got is available for All them. Right. All right. Now... Coming back to sort of sourcing, just trying to understand how some of this is made, because, again, a lot of it is very uh, similar. A lot of it, not all of it, but a, a, a number of these images are similar to the stuff that comes out of Dorothy Isaac. But, again, like I said, all of her images, pretty sure all of them that, uh, that we've seen, are all the results of motion picture film where you have sort of sets of adjacent photos. The idea that basically he's a conduit, you know, and these, that these images then sort of manifest is something that he suspects, but getting back to what we were talking about before, Robert doesn't necessarily, he doesn't know how these images are made, right? I mean, he just basically, he's acting as a conduit, but he can't tell you this is how they happen because he doesn't really know, correct? I, I'm not quite sure what you're asking, but no, he has no technical knowledge at all about cameras. 
I'm kind of relating it back to something you said before when you you um, you stated that there was some poltergeist activity or poltergeist-like activity that had happened around him. We're talking about furniture flying across the, you know, that kind of stuff. That that used to happen all the time. Doesn't happen very much anymore. Doesn't but you happen have to, anymore. I haven't well, seen that lately. Yeah. So in 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 those kinds of cases, poltergeist cases, where people sort of instantly assume, or many research ha- researchers have traditionally assumed that these things were externally sourced. You know, some malevolent spirit in a house, for example, trying to mess with the humans. Very often there's this uh, reality that there's a teenage, and usually it's a teenage female. Yeah, I know. Right, you know about this stuff. And mm-hmm. um, where then it sort of appears, and not that this is any less interesting, but it appears that a lot of the activity essentially is, it appears to be some form of, um, of telekinesis on the part of the teenagers. Now, it's kind of interesting, you said these things happened with, with Robert originally, but less so now. When you say they happened originally, might these have happened when Robert was in his teen years? Yeah. Okay. But it's just such a that's such a tiny portion of the stuff that goes on. I, I mean, it, it's uh, do we ignore it because it's a tiny portion, or do no? We but I'm telling you, it's it's a lot less interesting than a whole bunch of other stuff. I mean, what Rolls said to me, because this is Rolls' area of expertise, right? He told me that he did in fact observe many things about Robert that he thought were uh, typical in some of the other cases he's worked on, you know, in Robert's background and his circumstances, uh, Roll recognized those as being similar to many other cases that Roll has investigated himself. He, When I asked him, you know, what he thought it meant, he said he didn't have any idea what it meant. He said that it was, what was the exact words he used? He said that some sort of... PK effect was, I think, what it, all he could say. And he was standing there watching Robert, too. And he didn't see any sign of hoaxing either, but he didn't have any understanding of how this, I mean, because it was a huge variety. All I've shown you in this report are the light phenomena photos. There are all kinds of others. There were a whole bunch of UFO shots. There were creatures. There were all kinds of other things. And I'm going to be dealing with those images in another report, trying to separate this out into one type of thing so we can talk about them, you know. I don't know what it is. I just know it happens, and it's been happening for, in my knowledge of him, uh, 11 or 12 years now that I've seen it happening. And I've looked at these books that his father keeps of all these pictures, and there are thousands and thousands and thousands of them. The idea that anybody would have the energy to fake this, these huge number of pictures is ridiculous. You have to be an uh, idiot. Have we, have we intimated that he's faking these? No, I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about the, the bunkers in England who constantly attack him as if he were a faker, you know? He'd have to have motivation. He would have to be highly motivated. Right. He'd have to have some agenda for faking stuff. I think that what Robert offers us is he's another resource uh, in trying to understand all of this stuff. Since so many of these things are occurring around him, it seems to me that by studying him, we may get a larger understanding of poltergeist phenomena, of -of out-of-body experiences, of you know all this other stuff, things we label separately, because I don't think they are separate each from the other. I think they're they're interrelated. It's some massive alternative reality 
that we don't know very much about that is manifesting around or through him in a whole range of ways. I mean, healing and being able to, in the introductory story, I tell about how one time I was, I brought him an Easter basket as a present. I brought it in pieces. You know, I bought everything here in the States and carried it over because I didn't know if they had things there, Easter there. And I told him that I brought him a present, but I wasn't going to, he couldn't see it until Easter. I didn't tell him what it was, and they gave him no more clues. And one afternoon before Easter, he came into my room and wanted to know again what the present was, because I usually don't bring him a present. And I was being very coy, and I said, oh, I can't show you until Easter. He sat down at this little desk in my room, took a piece of paper and a pen, and proceeded to draw all of the little items that I had brought that were part of the Easter basket. He drew the basket, he drew the little eggs, he drew the Easter bunny. Uh, He could see it, you know, in his mind's eye. He simply saw it. And he does that whenever he turns his attention to something. He, He won't see it necessarily otherwise, although sometimes it intrudes upon him. If he and I are walking down the street in the village, you know, that's because we're on the market or something, some days I have to take him back home right away because the people who are walking toward him on the street, he will see everything about them. And there'll be so many people, it overwhelms him, you know. And when that, some days he can't control it. And so then we have to go home where it's quiet because it simply is too much coming in on him all at once. So Other Nancy, days we go and it doesn't yeah. happen at all. Um, Nancy, very quickly, on page one of the photography stuff, um, back on page one of the, uh, the light phenomena. Uh, At the very bottom of the page, there are three photographs. Uh, You're in, uh, I think you're in one of them. Yeah. There are uh, three orb photographs, small orbs in Robert's office where he sees clients for readings or healing sessions. And the one upstairs and then the one in the living room. Yeah, I got it. Okay. You you say that it's clearly not caused by insects or mist. No, they're not caused by insects or mist. That is air suspended dust in front of a lens. I don't think so. I know that some people have that opinion, but I don't think so. Yeah, um, I know so. Well, I I agree with you. Well, you can disagree with me. Um, What I want to bring up, though, below, you have a thing where you um, recreate the, uh, try to recreate the effect by having some mist, some, I guess, water-based mist near the lens, and certainly it doesn't look anything like the three photos you have above, and, and you wouldn't expect it to because of the fact that that's a water droplets, not solid particulate matter. And, and I'm just, again, I'm addressing just specifically the three images above. And uh, I right. hear you, and I disagree. Yeah. I, well, I, I know I, about that I, opinion. I know about right. that idea. Yeah. And I can't prove that you're wrong, but you can't about prove I'm, I'm wrong either. <laughs> sure, I can prove I'm right, actually. I don't think so. Not in Robert's so. house, I don't think you can. Well, I can give you photos... That look exactly that like this. That look very much generated. like this, yeah. That look exactly like it. I know. Right. I mean, I've seen, I've done things myself with dust and it can produce very similar things. One of the things I do observe, I don't know what this means, but when these orbs appear, they sometimes will occur in conjunction with all this other stuff. Let me ask you a specific question, then we're going okay. to wrap it. Okay, Nancy. When these orb pictures are taken, do you physically see what was taken by the camera? I never see in any of these images what has physically been captured. Okay, because you should understand that David's a professional in this business. Good. I know know other professionals have the same opinion. Right. Okay. Um, One last question, Gene, before you wrap, please. 
just real quickly because I noticed that in that picture he sees clients. He takes payment from these people for readings and healings. No, he doesn't. There is a, he won't charge anybody. His father encourages people to donate money, which uh, when they do, he puts in a trust fund for Robert. But Robert himself will not do that. Okay. Just curious. Thank you. Thank you, Nancy. Okay, You're Nancy, welcome. where do we get a hold of you if we want to know more of the things that you do? BLTResearch.com. Are you going to write this up in a book or just keep it limited to articles on the site? No. I told Robert I would do a book for him, and when I get the next couple reports up, I will then start pulling things together for a book in English. There is a book, but it's in Dutch, written by his father and fairly limited, so I'm going to do one in English for him. Okay. And in terms of anything else... This is the main case that you've been focusing on in recent years, then? In recent years, yes. Okay. Nancy Talbot, thank you so much for joining us this week on the Paracast. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Nancy. Bye-bye. The Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Join us next week for a new adventure in the Paracast.